This is Journeys in Podcasting. I am Chris, and today we're here with Sylvia Martinez, um, co-author of Invent to Learn. Um, Sylvia, how are you, and, and where are we talking to you? So, um, hi, Chris. This is um, thanks for for having me on. Um, I am right now at home in Los Angeles, California. Great. Um, so we've met before at uh, your conference or your co-produced conference, Constructing Modern Knowledge, and, and we've spoken once before years ago, uh, you were our introduction to uh, maker learning, so to speak. And so um, there's been a second edition put out in January 2019, so this is a great time to both recap on changes of the book and talk a little bit about changes in maker culture around the world and in the States. Uh, and then also about maybe plug a little bit about constructing modern knowledge, which I it, it is happening this summer, I believe. Is that, is it is right? happening well this summer. The constructingmodernknowledge.com is the website, and we're gearing up for it right now. We're planning and getting resources and and uh, gearing up for another great year. Great. So a lot of people come to this more modern maker movement since makers always been out there uh, through Adam Savage. And um, you know his his series of programs, and so I was listening to him last week on um, the Gadget Labs podcast, and he's just published a book, "Every Tool's a Hammer, Life Is What You Make It." He talks about a primary school, I believe it's in the Bay Area, where on day one, kindergarten students enter and they enter an empty room and there's no chairs. They make the chairs, constructing their own learning environment, so to speak. You are a mobile maker. Uh, you travel around, you visit many educators, you see many spaces. What are some of your most inspirational maker spaces that you've seen? I, I think that um, some of the inspirational ones are, are the people who are just making it happen because they truly believe that this is the way that kids learn. You know, I'm, 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 I'm happy when kids get good STEM jobs or become coders or something. But when I see um, students just light up when they've made something and, you know, I think that there are people who are really changing the world for some kids that that some kids have so little opportunity to experience real things in their homes and communities, which they may not have a lot of books in there that they have access to. They may never get to go to a museum. They, they may never have made anything or seen anyone make anything. Um, to be able to to make something on their own it's it's just about it's about pride it's about changing kids lives and there are people who are doing this in the in the poorest communities in, in the united states and the poorest communities around the world and i think it's it, i think it's you know um the most important thing we can do in education this idea of inclusivity you mentioned that at maker fairs tools and technology have gotten extremely complex with little for beginners to do the insularity of making reminds me of the RTM, the read the manual culture sometimes found in, in coding. And having worked in schools um, with very little in the way of, of technical making, I found very high levels of arts and craft making. Art teachers um, teaching Papert's constructionism through hands-on materials. Mm -hmm. I wonder what your thoughts are on, on making in schools as, as a recalling of the constructivist education models of Dewey, Montessori, Steiner, Piaget, Vygotsky, and others. Well, that's why we wrote Inventor. It's it's funny you mentioned the Arduino. The first time I heard of Arduino was from my daughter, who was an art major, and they were using microcontrollers to animate sculpture projects. And I was like, "What? 
what are you doing? And, you know, she explained this thing to, to me. And that's the first time I heard about it. It's the, it's the in, intent to make something interesting and beautiful in the world is not about technology. It's, it's a basic human impulse. And it's, it's the, you know, it, 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 it's what makes us uh, humans, in, humans special. And, and um, it doesn't have anything to do with formal schooling. So I, you know, that's, that's part of why I think this is so important and why I think that the role of technology is misunderstood. Um, the comment that we wrote in the book, and I think that was in the preface to the second edition where we talked about the changes from the first edition to the second edition was noticing how um, so much of at Maker Faire has gotten so extremely technical and that I didn't, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about it, but uh, Gary and I, my co-author Gary Steger and I talked a lot about this and it's like, it's almost the nature of <clears throat> communities to become more expert at what they do. And as you become more expert, you develop a language that you use that's very technical and very high level. And we could be talking about plumbing or, you know, playing video games or, you know, or any kind of community that develops expertise. And so the, the, the kind of level of expertise of the community goes up, it becomes harder for newcomers to join that community. So in education, you can't let that happen, right? You hope that the kids get more expert as you go on, but you've always got to have a place for newcomers to walk in and feel welcome and that there's something interesting to do and comfortable. And, you know, th that comment in the book was, I remember the first couple of maker fairs, there was tons of stuff. I went to lock picking workshops and there was soldering workshops and there was all kinds of stuff, you know, you could make with tape agami and stuff. And very few of those little entry level things have survived. I went to Massimo Banzai's um, uh, talk last year at Maker Faire, and I'm an electrical engineer. And I'm like, I'm barely hanging on to what he's talking about. But everybody in the audience is like, yeah, yeah, we need that thing, the X14 RAID array, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, what would you know a fifth grader do with this? What would a teacher do with this? How does this help introduce it introduce the powerful, accessible microcontroller to a, a new generation of people. And um, so I think, I think that sort of natural ex growing and, and expertise of the, of the maker movement makes, you know, for more interesting technology, but it also makes it harder for new people to see the value. Yeah, I feel like you're speaking off this idea of uh, situated, I think it's called situated cognition. I think right. I, I learned about this from kind of John Seeley Brown. Right. Um, and this idea of legitimate peripheral participation. That, right. That's that from Lave and Wenger's famous book called, I think, Situated Cognition. Yeah. And, and so that idea within schools that you would, I guess, get away from our, our highly metriced learning where everything has to, you know, everything has to be a, a construct within this period of time and you have to measure it in this way that sometimes within a project or within a discussion or within whatever your group activity is, there are those that will maybe just observe and, and listen and watch. I've had this experience when I go to ITP camp, for example, at NYU, and in constructing modern knowledge a bit too, although that's more based for educators to kind of bring them into this culture. Um, but a lot of things are just completely over my head during the camp. I mean, so far over that all I'm doing is asking is like, what is that? And, and that may be as far as I get. Um, you know, there's so many different levels of coding and platforms 
that you you know all you're trying to grasp is what does this language do? I'm not going to learn it, but you know what does JavaScript do compared to what does um, Python? You know what are these different languages good for? And so that that is what I, I believe you're talking about is that even when things are highly complex, there has to be this universal design to the learning that that even a child should be able to walk up and somehow be able to join and participate in, in, in what's going on. So you, one of Seymour Papert's really famous analogies uh, for that, to describe that was the Samba school. That in a Samba school, there's a community of practice that has experts who are very you know adept at doing what they do, but that you can participate in every level. You can you can move from the periphery of not knowing anything to into the circle of experts by devoting your time and 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 learning how that happens. And that school should be the same way. And yet the very things that are necessary for this legitimate participation, conversation, collaboration, time are in very short supply in schools. We chop everything up. We sort kids out by age and ability. Whoever in a school, do you ever see two experts having a conversation and disagreeing about how to approach a problem? How do you learn problem solving if you never see people do it? You know, and so we expect kids to learn all these things without ever seeing what an expert approach looks like or what a sort of expert approach looks like or standing around and watching two experts disagree. Um, and so I think part of what we tried to write about in the book was how you can use this technology to be at the center of a collaborative community that's learning to do something new. Yeah. And so for teachers that have tried to create that within teacher collaborative time, for example. So I'm, I'm thinking of a first year that I was at a certain school and we were given this time and we were just told to collaborate and told to use it however we wanted, which was great. So another teacher and I said, why don't we bring in student work that we're struggling with, that we've tried this, we've tried this, and we're not sure what the next step should be. And let's talk about it as a group. So we did this and then we just got pounced on by our, our literacy coach, who's supposed to be, you know, the one who knows, uh, for saying basically you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. And we were just like completely shut us down. We never once again stuck our neck out or took that took that risk again, because within our schools, the culture usually is everyone's working a lot harder at their second job than their first job, meaning the second job is trying to hide what you don't know. Uh, you know, everyone's so trying to be the professional at everything that you just want to like make sure that that people don't realize what you don't know. And I think that just comes into like our, our version of teacher culture in that we throw teachers into a classroom with very little mentorship. And we just say, you know, you go be the professional. And then so, of course, your first couple of years, all you're trying to do is keep your head above water and hide what you don't know, so to speak. L let me shift a little bit to this idea of this because you're speaking around it, but I kind of want to hear your thoughts on it. This idea of childhood as a construct and the tools that we put in, into a child's hand. So this week I've been reflecting on, on this idea of childhood as a construct and how the tools we put in a child's hand say a lot about our beliefs and what we believe children are capable of. You all cite Reggio Emilia spaces and 
I often see in these regiomelian spaces two kinds of tools, those of construction, the tools that they can make things with, and those that are artifacts, these ideas of hanging inquiry, tools that will un unlock knowledge. Um, in your experiences, we, we spoke about Arduino, we spoke about some of the electronic tools, but what are your ultimate maker tools, both as constructs, and what are the things you wanna just have in the space to, to unlock knowledge? Well, I think some of the, you know, the things that we identified as game changers in the book fall into three general buckets of uh, fabrication. So additive fabrication like 3D printers, subtract, subtractive fabrication like laser cutters and uh, computer controlled design software that goes along with them. Uh, second, physical computing, uh, meaning anything that connects the digital world to the physical world. So microcontrollers, robotics kits fall into that general category. And then programming, this ability to manipulate digital data and uh, you know, in all kinds of different programming languages, but putting the power of this amazing computer into kids' hands. So in each of those, the construct is, is that the student is at the center of the learning and the control. So you're not doing things to the student, you're letting the students express themselves to make meaning out of the world in ways that, that interest them, um, which is a very Reggio way to look at things. In, in Reggio Emilia, the students' questions lead what happens in the classroom. And then it's the teacher's job to shape those, the, the learning environment and provide opportunities for students to um, explore their questions by making things in the classroom. And, you know, because Reggio is, is a 70-year-old technology um, and, and model, they've got a lot of experience with, with, with traditional material, classroom materials. But, they're, but they never say, oh, we, we don't expose the kids to computers. It's just another material. Part of what we talk about in the book is computer as material. So that you're using the computer or design software or physical computing as a way to, um, as just another material, just another tool in the toolkit. It's not privileged over clay or crayons or art materials or you know any of the tools that we use in school. But should take its rightful place next to them. And they're very powerful tools. Some of the things that we try and teach kids in schools are very hard to understand without the computer. A lot of mathematical concepts, more, and mostly modern mathematical concepts, are really hard to do, almost impossible without computers. And yet we're rigidly stuck in the technology of the last century, you know, paper and pencil and slates and whiteboards and blackboards and you know, we think that those technologies uh, are identical to school, and they're not. We need to we need to expand. We need to open up what what we what we expose kids to, what we let children use, and help them understand um, to a lot of new things. I mean, it's not just maker stuff that school ignores. Most of modern science, science that's happened in the last ten to twenty five years hasn't made its way into school curriculum. Uh, the way that history is done, the way that statistical, that big data has changed the work of historians and sociologists and anthropologists are not really touched in, in school. 
um, we've, we've got a problem with curriculum and it's not just about computers not making its way into schools. It's any kind of modern, uh, you know, expressions of, you know, how we make the world, how we make things in the world, how we make the world a better place. Yeah, so a couple of things off of what you just said. One is going back to this idea of your daughter introducing you to the Arduino yeah. through her work with, with art. And I was listening to McLuhan last night or segments of his talks, and he's, he talks about if you want to find out like what technology is out there and what we'll probably be doing with that technology over the next 10 to 20 years, look at what the artists are doing with it. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, I visited the Rauschenberg exhibit at the MoMA in New York and was blown away by his work with electronics, making these interactive exhibits where go up and touch this button, turn this knob, and you become an interactive part of the art piece. Mm-hmm. And then I walk, you know, literally across town and enter the ITP work and they're working on like the exact same thing of these things that were done, you know, 20, 30 years before by artists with, you know, electronics of that time. So if that's true, then why don't we see, or maybe we are seeing, but why don't we see more of, of this blending of arts integration programs that have been around and done well for a long time. So arts mixed with liter- other forms of literacy and put tech into that. Do you know what I'm saying? So that like as kids are reading a novel, then they're also developing things about the character, you know, in an artistic way with these electronic tools. But one of the things that we actually wrote about in the in the preface to the new edition of Invent to Learn is how fast schools change when they really want to. You know, I'm never going to believe again that schools can't change because I've seen schools change when there's a, a critical mass of people who say it's going to happen and stop telling me it can't, it can't, and why not, and we're just going to do it. And they... They try things, they make mistakes, they work hard to, ha- to help the parents and the students understand what the, what the mission is. Um, they have administrators who support, just you know the, the example that you said before where you got shut down for trying something that, that you guys thought were working. You know, it, it, it's the opposite in schools that make it work. Administrators say, hey, here's the big idea, you guys make it happen, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a miracle, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And you see kids and students and parents just revitalized and energized and they're like, they've got a mission and they, they're like doing something new and it's so fantastic. And they come up with fabulous ideas about how to do those kinds of things, how to integrate arts with, with technology and science and you know turn projects that, that they've been doing for 20 years on their heads and it, it can be done. I refuse to, to listen to people who say that schools will never change. I think, I, I think they are. It's not easy. Mm. It's, you know, it's not comfortable. It's well, not uh, something that you can, you know, roll out the seven step framework and go, okay, here's step one. And we're going to, you know, sit in a meeting and have one meeting and then the whole thing's going to happen. It, it takes it takes time and effort and focus and people who who care about the process really making it happen. So you mentioned this idea of the lag effect that you know things that 
and science have been out there for 20 years and are not yet taught in schools. Mm -hmm. um, what's your perspective on just kind of the lag effect of like cognitive sciences of, of you know, I, I feel like we've moved from this, slowly moved from a very progressive movement in education, kind of the times of Dewey, the times of Vygotsky, into this times of like behavioral science kind of took control that the mind is a black box with inputs and outputs. Um, which is a very efficient model if you just want kids to sit at a desk and, and read things off a board and, and input them and then output them for test. He moved this idea that everything is a representation in the head. And I believe that the current wave is more of this embodied cognition, this grounded cognition, this situated learning that we're talking about, where knowledge is not just something in the head, but knowledge is about this, this interaction. Um, do you see that as common theme in education? Um, are you jaded by the Bay Area and the West Coast? May, maybe were there more leaning in that direction? Uh, what, what do you see there? Well, I can tell you that being from California, that California is not a progressive haven of, uh, of for schools. I mean, it's it, the the public schools in California are every bit as instructionist as 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 any place in the world. Gosh, there's, there's so many answers to this. Um, that's some of it. And I, I'm not blaming teachers. I, I'm totally not blaming teachers. But there's a lot of educators who don't know what they believe about learning. And I think that this is not educators' fault. They're doing a really hard job with no time and no resources. And when are they supposed to like do this like mental exercise of thinking about thinking? But we've accepted that you can do the job of an educator and not really have any firm beliefs about how people learn. You can follow a recipe, you, you, the textbook tells you what to do, you show up, you do what you're told. And, and I think that's, that's harmful to teachers' idea of themselves as a, as a professional. I think that if you know what you believe about learning, it becomes slightly easier to just even take the first step into thinking about how that translates into what happens in your classroom. If, you, if you're just following someone else's curriculum and you don't know why, there's very, likely, there's very little likelihood that you're going to be able to think about how to incorporate new ideas or take a twist on something or take something that you see on Mythbusters and bring it into the classroom. If, if, and if you're not, if you don't have time and you don't have the resources, and you're not being encouraged to do it, why would you? You know, so I think we live in a culture that doesn't encourage teachers to be curious or to be <clears throat> kind of masters of, of their own destiny. I, I think that, that the question of what do I believe about learning is a fundamental question that educators should have time to think about because there's not one answer. You know, I, I'm not going to argue with a teacher if they really have a strong belief in something and they're making these things happen in the classroom and they're looking at their kids and they're seeing the results and they're saying, okay, now I'm going to tweak my method to, to this or that. I'm not going to argue with them. That's someone who's doing a good job. Now, we could have a conversation about, you know, you believe this and I believe that and that's, that's how these things happen. But if you're just, you know, following along and saying, well, some teacher next door gave me some, you know, some worksheets and I copied them and I hand them out to kids, how can you even take the next step about talking about how to, how to make change to that? It just, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. 
And I, I know you know that, that the research says that American teachers have the least amount of time of any teacher in the world um, outside of their teaching time. They get zero time. A lot of teachers get very little planning time. They get no collaboration time. They get no PD time that isn't prescriptive, that isn't like, here's the new gradebook program that you have to learn how to use. And so when are they supposed to do this kind of the intellectual work of, you know, helping children become functional adults? Um, it's hard work. And we shouldn't expect educators to just sort of do it by magic. Um, I, I don't think it's fair. So, you know, I, 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 think that, I think that we have a structural problem in schools that has a lot to do with deprofessionalizing the, the teaching the, the educators. And um, we have to deal with those problems. It's funny you're saying all this because one, I wholeheartedly agree that that many enter education without a clear theory of knowledge, and even myself, I feel like I came out of a really good liberal arts school, which I think prepared me for this idea and gave me some basic ideas, even without educational training, that there's an orality to learning, even at higher levels, that it's multimodal, that it requires direct. Did you say, did you say morality? Orality. Orality. Oh, okay. I mean, there's, there's a morality as well. I was going to go with morality too. If, I was if, like, if you're okay. going to learning to a moral belief, then of course it's going to be even stronger. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and that understanding came out later, kind of through practice. But most of my theory of knowledge has been an in, an inadvertent theory that that just after years of kind of anecdotal evidence and maybe a little bit of an oddball, and then I put in a lot of reflection time, do a lot of recording, a lot of listening to kids of trying to figure out what they're talking about. Um, those have always kind of been in my loop of practices, but also a very a kind of a disbelief in the in the system itself that, you know, trying to, you know, have to weed through all the crap to realize where is the beef of this reading program? Uh, you know, oh, that's really cool. You have these junior grade books in the closet. Like, that's actually a cool program. We can incorporate that into our reading program and finding ways to kind of tweak things to make it smart, so to speak. Yeah, this is something coming up, but I want to jump around a little bit because uh, something in your introduction really dawned on me that in between the publishing of your books, um, you have this idea of, of the great loss we've had. You said, you said while we, we've been on this theme of these big constructivists, you mentioned in the introduction um, that we've lost between your two editions, Edith Ackerman, Seymour Papert, Marvin Minsky, and Bob Tinker, and others. Uh, what does this mean for constructivist education? These were the big dreamers that really wanted to revolutionize what we call schooling. Where does that go from here? Does it splinter out into a million pieces? Uh, you know, are there enough Blicksteins and, and yourself and around? Like, what do you think happens to it from here? Well, I, I, I don't think I'm in that category. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that um, we have to be conscious about coming together and, and talking. Um, you know, it's a it's it's super the world is a super busy place. And it's like your calendar is full of stuff and your to do list is full of stuff. And when do we ever have time to talk about these things? And um, we have to we have to try and make time and figure it out. Um, I, I think that, you know, with every passing icon, there's an opportunity to go back and look at their work and say what made them 
uh, important and what made them essential and where are those ideas today? Uh, I don't think they're gone. I don't think that that it's lost. Um, and in fact, you know, it, this kind of connects back to what I said before. I find that teachers have really good instincts about what works for kids, but a lot of times they don't feel validated enough to make those things happen even in their own classroom. Some teachers have enough of a, of a kind of a self-confidence where they just try stuff and they, they overcome those sort of institutional, you know, wagging fingers and, and, <laughs> you know, they do it anyway, but we, you know, we can't expect every teacher to be, you know, an, an autodidact revolutionary, you know, risking their job kind of person. You, you shouldn't have to be a martyr to be a good teacher. Um, and I think that we need to find the, the, the people who inspire you. You need, people need to look for new models and new heroes and um, people whose writing makes sense. Um, people whose writing takes your thinking to the, to the next level. Um, People, and not just writing, I mean, speaking and doing all of those things. Um, I, I, think it's a, I think it's important to, to look for that stuff. And there's a, I think there's people out there. Um, it's just, it, it's difficult, especially in a big country like the, U, the US, there's so much noise. You know, there's like, there's like millions and millions of people, literally all doing things. And, and it's funny that, you know, we talked before we even started the recording, how there are these amazing schools doing amazing things that no one's ever heard of. And they're off busily in their corner, like not paying attention to all the stuff that's going on in the world, just doing fantastic things. And you run across them and you go, oh my God, how are you doing this? They're like, oh, I don't know, we just decided. We just did it, we just started. Um, and, but because the world is such a noisy place, we, we don't hear those stories. I have people say to me every single day, this isn't happening anywhere. And it's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm, tr you know, I'm trying to make these stories come out, but um, it feels like you're sort of you know, shouting into the, into the wind. But I think that it's okay to rely on um, small stories, small examples of things that work, um, which is one of the things we try to do in Invent to Learn is tell these small stories. Uh, my work with the Fadler and Fellows at Columbia University, you mentioned Paula Blickstein, is have these educators who are really working hard and they're super busy. So who has time to like write these things down? So help help amplify their voices and, and get those stories out so people don't feel so alone. Yeah, um, going back to this idea, you know, I live in Bogota where informal making is, is a, a big thing right down the street. I can go and there's, um, there are shops that sell Arduinos, but then right next door to the Arduino shop is the place you bring your transistor radio to be fixed or your cassette recorder or whatever aging piece of technology you have, they'll, they'll fix it. A while back ago, I podcasted with Aaron Wanderwerf, I believe is how you pronounce his name from lighthouse schools. You may be familiar with his work. Um, yep. He's a Fabler fellow. Yeah, and he talks yeah. about how um, his parents who work with their hands felt a great connection to a school that validated hands-on making. And this, you know, this idea that making doesn't have to be 
reinvented uh, for, for many classes of people. But in a place like Bogota, it does have to be destigmatized uh, that yeah. working with the hands is not just the activity of the lower classes. And I believe there's incredible bridge points that could be worked there between these two worlds. And, you know, I think they're already happening. I bring my Arduino to a place to power it that really like the guy's not from that background, but he's learned it from the surrounding environment. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned this thing in your introduction. Uh, how do you see making moving beyond just sort of this idea or what it used to be? I think it's kind of the Bay Area Boys Club to a unifier of communities to create those threads? Well, I think pointing pointing it out is is the first step and saying there's a lot of, of examples where, you know, making is, is you know, a privileged activity, um, which is kind of a weird sociological uh, flip-flop. As, as you say, you know, I know my, from my parents who were from blue collar backgrounds, they saw education as a way to get out of having to work with, with your hands. And I think a lot of cultures say, you know, working with your hands is, is old fashioned and not the way to success. So school is a place where you go to get away from that. And, um, but I think people like Adam Savage, you know, has, has changed that. I think, the, the popular culture has turned once again and, and said making do is a, is a, is a good thing. It's not just um, a, an economic necessity. It's not the mark of a lower class to, to fix things and buy things secondhand and, and, you know, make them work and DIY and craft is, is a good thing. Um, I think that's a societal change that has helped the maker movement in schools. Um, you know, so anytime we can we can support those things and point out that we have we have a lot of people with incredible knowledge, especially in schools, especially parents who may not see school as a place where their knowledge is valued and doing things like having a maker space, inviting grandmothers in who know how to sew is incredibly helpful you know, and sort of balances out that equation that says that school is this elitist thing that takes you away from your culture instead of connects you to your culture. Yeah, I, I'm real fond of this idea of school environments where everybody that enters the campus has to teach something. So if you are a gardener, then when the young kids study plants, you may come in and give them a lesson or, or plant with them or show them uh, what grows in this environment and what does it need to keep growing? Um, and so I've used these tactics a lot and trying to pull from from parents and community of, oh, we're studying this. Who do we know? Who's the specialist? Mm -hmm. So that every topic of study, every unit of study has some specialist that we talk to and preferably from the immediate community. And if not, we go online and connect with someone there. So I, I think that's something that just sort of should be, should be kind of built in. Um, well, let me move on to this idea of storytelling because you have a lot and your introduction has a lot packed in it. Um, <laughs> two years ago at Constructing Modern Knowledge, I listened to Deborah Meyer talk about making as a child being inseparable from fantasy play narrative mm -hmm. of making spaces for dolls, of creating uh, spaces for those stories. Um, and to me, this is bringing back this idea of, of play, of orality, in not morality, but orality and literacy <laughs> development. Um, 
and somehow learning became this like science of language development separating separated from our embodied experiences but in education we have this approach that everything needs to have its own space and time that if we're going to bring in maker into schools then it's got to have its corner of the library or its own space or its own specialist maker teacher um which are, those are great things to have these as any spaces but I'm wondering where you have seen or what your thoughts are about this idea of making alongside of narrative and, and language construction too. Well, I think it's it's crucial. One of the things that we tried to amplify in the in the second edition is that the idea of makerspace is a is a band-aid. It's a it's a it's a hack, you know. Um, because the, the, the best thing that could happen is that all this be integrated into the classroom that, and, you know, or, and the whole school that, you know, Gary says all the time, the best maker space is between your ears. Um, and, you know, this idea that making is something that you do every couple of weeks, you walk down the long hall to the special room, you make a thing, and then you come back to real school. You know, I'm making air quotes. Um, it's, it's damaging, you know, it's not going to be good for kids in the long run or, or the school environment, because it reinforces the idea that the rest of the school doesn't have to change when that's the whole point of bringing this into the school. But, you know, the, the nature of school as we've designed it in the last century is to, is to segregate and to, you know, put things into silos and to try and you know organize the day so you go from science to math to this to that and you know when the bell rings you stop being a scientist and you start being you know a mathematician well that's not how the real world works i mean scientists think about all those things in coordination they don't like have bells that that they turn on you know that that tell them to go from one task to the other uh, nor do mathematicians or engineers or artists or, you know, historians or paleontologists or, you know, any, anyone who's working in, at a job that, you know, where they're really trying to uncover new things, um, takes the time they need to do the job. And that idea doesn't mesh well with the way we've designed school. So, so, you know, I often work with schools, um, and, and it's very hard to pinpoint what the actual problem is. You know, so I, I, I just a shortcut, this isn't any one school. I'll go to school and they say to me, we do, we, we're really dedicated to project-based learning, but, but the kids don't have enough time to do the projects. So let's make projects that are shorter. And I'm like, wait, what's the problem, right? They said what the problem is. They said they don't have enough time. The time is the problem, not the project, but it's easier <laughs> to work on the on the you know on those other things than saying well how do we make more time in the day how do we combine classes and and you know those kinds of structural changes that might solve or go a ways to solving the problem that they're worried about rather than trying to you know tinker with something completely unrelated and hope that it you know it jumps in and saves the day um, it's I, I think it's you know it's just sort of it's it's just sort of funny how people approach approach these things, because um, sometimes the problem is staring you right in the face. It's just you don't want to face it. You um, mentioned this idea of a traveling 
project. So you talk about the Islamic tile project that emerged out of CMK 2012, starting as Kate Taber's attempt to recreate a series of tiles from a trip to Southern Spain to Josh Berker's elementary turtle art project that they printed onto clay tiles. Mm -hmm. Then Jim Tiffin picked up the project at Mount Vernon Institute for Innovation. This is amazing. This could develop. We should have seen life. what we left out. I could have written, there were 10 other, you know, uh, uh, projects that all blossomed out uh, of this, of this one idea. It's, a, it, it was great. I wish I had had, I'll, I'll someday I'll put it all online because it's, it's. Uh, well, I would say that's kind of what we did. Like when we're looking at project design. So I ran like nine projects a year with two teachers at a time. And we would sit and just kind of lay out what are your, um, what are your standards? What are your learning objectives you you plan to cover over this next period of time? Okay, now what could we do as a project that would really you know encompass a lot of these things? And we would go hunting other people's projects. So looking at high tech high, combing through theirs, combing through books, just kind of like uh, document projects. And that to me was sort of the dream of this narrative you were telling is that people could go find these, you know, I'm thinking of like the global book projects where um, 50 schools from around the world each contribute a page to this book on this theme. And so it becomes this kind of global project that there, there could be such thing as like the traveling projects that everyone around the world can can grab onto. I mean, I know these things do exist. That's just when I, as soon as you said that, I was like, what an amazing idea. We need this to kind of keep going. I don't have a question there. I just wanted to call that out. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so let's talk about Locke and Hobbes. Hang on. Can, can we pause one second? I've got a guy at the, at the door. Oh, yeah. I'm quoting from your book where you say, look at the program of any early childhood conference. Half the sessions are about creating wondrous Reggio-inspired learning environments, and the other 50% are, concer are concerned with teaching three-year-olds to regulate behavior. This disparate school, these disparate school scenarios are not are not naturally occurring. They're chosen and shaped by adults. So a few years ago, I sat in my director's office and maker education came up and he shook his head and he just said, I don't get it. And I, I really struggled. You know, I'd been years attempting to work project based maker inspired learning into this kind of mono psychometric structure. My approach was to show by example, to document, to reflect, to publish to the whole school. Mm -hmm. um, you've worked with many educators and school leaders, and I'm sure you've come across this same wall of, I just don't get it. What's your strategy? <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to do everything and more. I, there's never one thing that works. Because people people are all coming at this from different different backgrounds, different personal school experiences. You know, some people love school. Some people love, you know, being in a structured environment with with, with rigid rules and, and doing well at, at what they were being asked to do. It's very rewarding when, you know, I was, the, I was a smart kid. I got good grades. It's very rewarding when you're being told that you're smart. And, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an escalating cycle of uh, that, that uh, rewards you and, and develops you as a as a, a thinker in the mold of school. Um, through the years, though, <laughs> you most people and I certainly discover that that's not the only way to be smart. That there are lots of people who didn't do well in school who were told that they weren't smart, who really really have incredible talents, 
Um, and I've met them in all walks of life. I've been an aerospace engineer. I've been a video game designer. I've, I've run nonprofits. And you run into people who have these amazing gifts who were told by school that they didn't belong. And you, I just have to question why we're so stuck in this very narrow view of what success means. Um, and, you know, like we could talk another hour about the, the structural problems and, and all of those things. Um, you know, I find in the maker movement, I find in the technology something that, that I think uh, can help students be more empowered to, because they can do powerful things that are seen as valuable in the world. Mm. Um, I don't think empowerment, I don't think mindfulness comes from being taught. I don't think you can do mindfulness to kids or do empowerment to kids. I think mindfulness comes from doing something you care about. You know, it, it bothers me, I have to say, when I see a lot of this SEL, social emotional learning, as something that's separate from what from the work that the students could be doing when they could be doing work that's that's meaningful and and meaningful to them and meaningful to, to the community and meaningful to the world you know some of the fascination with this new technology is that it's new no one's seen it before you can make a you know a, a, you can make a machine that like does this amazing thing you can do that people are amazed Making people amazed is a cool thing. You know, I don't care if you're a magician or an artist or a, or a mathematician or building a robot. If other people go, oh, you've done something, you know? So I think when, when, and sometimes the only way kids get that response from adults is by doing bad things. And when that's your only choice, I think you, you take it. So anything we can, we can give to kids that lets them do something amazing and interesting and powerful um, and is, a, is connected to the bigger picture of powerful ideas that exist in the world. Just, just like, you know, explosion. <laughs> oh, I, I'm totally agree with you on this idea. Storm. Um, this idea of kind of the misaligned mindfulness that that, and I was just reading on this this week, so that was very much on my mind that um, mindfulness in the West becomes this image of the, you know, the seated Buddha who's completely removed from the world, who's in this kind of state of bliss. Yeah. And while those are practices that are very well documented and they are, you know, things that, that some meditating monks do achieve, that is not what most Buddhists would claim that the goal of mindfulness is, that mindfulness is to be attuned and acutely aware of what you're doing and so in a school environment that would mean for me creating environments and creating experiences where students are attuned and acutely aware of what they're engaged in and 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 what what purpose that has and so for example you know you can pass a classroom and look in and say oh how motivated those kids are they're so excited well, yeah, that's great. As long as the teacher is using that motivation as mechanism to draw the students closer into what they're learning. Otherwise, we're just sort of like creating these flashes of, of mindfulness and these flashes of, of, of motivation, but it may not really lead to kind of deep engagement of, of what the kids are, are learning about. At least that's the way I kind of was thinking around it. 
Um, this this makes me think very much to this idea of uh, you quote a a Loris Malaguzzi who's from Reggio Emilia program, and I believe it's a poem you're quoting. It's, it says, "The school and culture separate the mind from the body. They tell the child to think without hands, to do without head." Um, this week, the reading that I've been immersed in is Francisco Varela's Embodied Mind, where he quotes Kant. Perception without conception is blind, while conception without perception is empty. And then Varela takes this, this idea further into an idea of inactivism, where knowledge exists in the interplay between mind, body, and environment, not something just in the head, that we enact the world through our intended action and reflection. You and Gary later write, throughout history, there's been an acceptance of the intuitive sense that peak learning results from direct experience. But this progressive learning approach is only accessible to learning communities ready to accept those ideas. Um, my view is that how does this not become insular, that, that it's these going to be these elite schools or these private schools that are enabled to convince a community of this kind of embodiment of knowledge, whereas the other schools are the ones that basically have been uh, the victims of standardized testing. That even though standardized testing is supposed to save the weaker schools, in effect, what it does is it kind of oppresses them into this standardized testing environment where knowledge is viewed as something very much within the head that you then put out in, into a, a test. So I guess my question is, um, how do we spread that out? And, and so that it doesn't just become this insular kind of elite idea that only sort of those with access can, can get. Does that make sense? I, kind of, uh, I, I rambled all over the place there. So I mean, and, and I was ping ponging from like you know all these like <laughs> you know the, the, as you were talking, the thing that came first to mind was Paulo Freire, and that when we look at people as other, the the solutions that we do to them will will never work. Um, we have to exist in communities that that trust of trust and love and responsibility um and that you know how not techie is that right um that that when we when we look at kids as other when we look at communities as others and, and that we're we're not part of of that i think it's i think it's it loses a lot of its power the the other the other part of that I'm glad you mentioned the Freire because that whole idea of, of banking, the banking approach to learning that um, schools are places like a bank where you go for the knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas my impression of Freire from what I've read is he was very much constructivist from the ground up in that, um, you know, he taught cane workers uh, to read within 45 days. And like he did it through discussing what their ideas were, what they needed, what they right. felt like they wanted to talk about. <laughs> and through those critical dialogues, it all sort of built from there. Mm -hmm. and, and so that to me is like this beauty of where the maker part comes in is that, and that kind of relates to this idea of, of the tools that we bring in. Oh well, yeah, I remember the second part. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so like if maker culture is already, you know, a part of that, that community or that Pueblo then of course that should be used. So I was talking earlier about like how I came into the Latin American private schools and, and what I noticed immediately is like, oh, well they're making, they're just doing it with like arts and crafts, but, but it's all there. And so as we started bringing in tech integration, 
the project's constantly mixed between three spaces, writer's workshop, because that was a lab environment, um, the art room, because that was a lab environment, and then tech integration became part of that kind of creative process. So going back to the, the idea of the Freire is that like, if we if we come in with this idea of standardized testing, then we're we're buying into this banking idea of knowledge that sure. um, you know these people are going to come to school and we're going to dish out what they need for knowledge in order for their school to continue to exist and get funding from the state. Sure. Increase this idea of the banking, but I think that what you're talking about is that that making has to come from the community itself and that like find out wherever it connects into their maker existence or world. Sorry, that kind of wandered all over the place. Um, let me close with these last. Uh, hey, no, let me, so, so let me say oh. something about that. Yeah, I, I don't you. think testing is just about the banking model. It is, uh, but it's also about mistrust. You don't trust the teachers to know how the kids are doing. You don't trust the students that they're going to actually learn anything important unless you decide what it is and you decide how they're going to spit it back. So I think that this this trust is such a crucial part of, of what we need to, to reinstill back into the system. And um, I think you do it by trusting people. And if things don't work out, then you fix it. But um, you know, I think we've institutionalized the mistrust uh, at all levels, from from the student classroom teacher level to the to the teacher administrator administrator, you know, state national bureaucracy. Every level mistrusts, you know, the the, the 360 degrees around them. Um, it's it's not a it's not a recipe for for you know for progress. I think the other part of of this, and this is what I want to say um, about how we overcome some of this, is that some of these tools, uh, when you teach people how to use, very specific example, like a sensor, right? You teach people how to use a sensor. It's not just to learn about sensors. It's so that they can measure things that they care about. They could measure noise pollution. They could measure uh, rainfall, they could measure soil moisture, they could measure anything that's meaningful to them to either do a better job of farming or, uh, you know, uh, make sure that their their uh, homes aren't being damaged by chemicals or noise pollution. If we put the power into people's hands and teach students when they're young that they have control over these machines and technology, that it's it's for them to make change in the world, to use this data, to collect this data, to go out and make the world a better place. I think that's how we make this change happen. Well, for me, it's the, the hacker Bible, although you all quoted it, I, I believe from, from Levy. So last summer, um, I had the opportunity to visit the Chaos Computer Club, which okay. is attached to something called Seabase in <laughs> Berlin. Uh, and it was introduced to this, uh, the, the hacker Bible, which is, which is online. A lot of this comes out in your invent to learn when you're quoting Levy, where you talk about access for all, mistrust of authority, and promoting a decentralization of meritocracy, of computers that, that computers create art and that computers change your life for the better. You might call all of this like the antithesis to schools. So I know this comes out in several places in your book. How does maker culture even fit into schools? And should it be better left to fab labs, hackerspaces, the extracurricular? Is there even hope for, or is there hope for like a new guild system 
where we'll have journeymen and grandmasters, which we kind of have now in the in the form of like hackerspaces, um, where this could develop into kind of blockchain micro-credentials, a third path to our traditional schooling. Um, maybe you've already answered this question because you do write that maker culture gets smarter when it buzzes with activity, absent from the external pressures of schooling, assessment, curriculum, lecture, demands of note-taking. Um, so what are your thoughts there on as far as like this future? Will it can split and we'll just continue to go different paths? Or do you think that schools will develop more like this school that um, we talked about at the beginning where kindergartners arrive the first day and they just start making because they have to sit down? Um, what, what do you see the trajectory? So I, 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 I'm not here to predict the future. I have no idea what's going to happen. Is the whole thing just going to implode and there's going to be like, you know, millions of kids wandering the streets and, and forming into guilds? I, I, I don't think that's going to happen. But, hey, you know, um, one of the things that if you if you think about the history of, of the education of, as a social kind of construct, it's never changed because of of education theory. It's always changed because of some social problem, pressure. You know, there's a lot of immigrants. What do we do? There's a lot of, you know, there's there's a, uh, a an America that needs to sort of be like taught how to be Americans. What do we do? Uh, there's a lot of poor people. What do we do? You know, so and then back in Europe, there's, you know, how do we get people reading at a level uh, that's not going to take a private tutor for every student? Oh, we'll solve it by inventing the classroom. You know, so an educator didn't sit down and say, hmm, what's the best way for people to learn? It was these big, you know, it was the industrial revolution that changed education. And we're, we're in these industrial revolutions. I don't know, people, it's like the fourth industrial revolution or who, who knows what the number is um, that we're in right now that's, that's, you know, showing people something that's very revolutionary that the way that most people learn now doesn't have anything to do with sitting in a classroom. And so how society inter internalizes that message plus social pressures. I mean, we could have a gas crisis that, that sidelines all school buses. And that's the thing that like creates this like crazy, you know, revolution in schooling. There's already schools in, across the Midwest that have gone to four day a week schedules because they can't afford the gas for the buses. There's nothing to do with learning, right? So <laughs> I, 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 think, I think it'll probably be some crazy, you know, climate change, economic, social thing that finally rolls over into education reform. And hey, let's be ready. You know, let's have models ready that work on a different timetable, on a different schedule that don't rely on the technology of the past, but are, are, are cognizant of the technology of the, of the present and future. So whatever happens, we're ready. Yeah, so this, uh, you, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about this idea of the, the, the spillover between hackerspaces, makerspaces, and, and, and coding culture. And as I have gone around and talked to people, like, where did you learn how to code? A lot of it is gonna be very age dependent, but the older people, none of them learn how to code in school. I mean, every single one of them learned how to code. It was a self-learning process. Right. Like I, I did it at home. I did it at my club. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, this is 
part of this idea of like, well, there's this pressure or there's this new tool in this new industry. And I guess the problem is like, we all want to enter it. How do we get in there? Well, you know, you have to learn how to code and you have to be able to manipulate, um, you know, physical things, but also digital things. And that to a large extent continues today that we try to model our coding programs after kind of a traditional schooling model. Yeah. Where it becomes very much about the opposite of what you're talking about. It does become about learning how to master the sensor without any other kind of larger purpose, but it becomes like the technical the part of that. Um, and so that's a really interesting thing to pull into schools. And that's why I kind of mentioned all this idea of like arts integration and other forms of giving all of these technical skills purpose. So we're not just teaching, here's how you you know, use the microcontroller and light the LED lights, but what's the larger art exhibit or thing that you're trying to, to put it into purpose? So I saw something this, this week that really surprised me, and it was this idea, two things. One is um, from your book, Papert's Dream, that um, computers would become as common as paper mache, that they would become part of our constructivist toolkit. Yeah. Um, and the second one was that this incredible percentage of adults that now access YouTube on a regular basis is now like 73%. Yeah. You know, compare that to a few years ago. Now, the other side of this is, yeah, now we're all carrying these, these powerful computers in our hands, but what are we doing with it? And so I, I kind of look at, at television and the technologies, and I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Gibson's idea of affordances, because I know that affordances and constraints comes into the, the tech talk a lot. Yeah. But the affordances are that like the new tools and constraints that will rely on our past experiences, our capabilities, our beliefs and our goals with that tool. And I think you've identified kind of a larger bracket, which is the overwhelming cultural force that is driving what's the problem that's trying to be solved with the tool. But if we only have had experiences with television, for example, as a passive experience, then of course, when we get tablets in our hands and put them in the hands of children, they're going to be passive tech, not what Mitch Resnick talks about as this idea of constructivist screen time versus this kind of passive screen time. Um, and so that's where I feel like the maker movement needs, or maybe we don't need a maker movement, but we need kind of a new literacies movement, which I think is, a, is kind of a movement already, but this idea of we're, um, we're teaching a kind of holistic literacy that you know we're teaching problem solving skills and these are all of your tools that will go into that that problem solving be it reading and writing manipulation of a microcontroller or a sensor or whatever else i don't really have a question there so i'm not really sure <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, you know it's fun to talk about this stuff it's it's fine I think this would be a good time to to close but i want to talk a little bit about constructing modern knowledge this summer, um, what are the dates? How do people get in? Uh, what can they expect to find once they arrive there? So Constructing Modern Knowledge is our like a big uh, four-day summer institute for educators. It's the biggest professional development event we do uh, throughout the year. Um, we spend all year planning. We, um, we, the, 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 the idea behind constructing modern knowledge is to create a learning environment with absolutely no constraints so that teachers can come in and say, wow, you know, there were no rules, there was no curriculum, there was no, you know, uh, uh, mandatory lesson plan or list of stuff. 
I just came in and, you know, we have frameworks to help people brainstorm project ideas. But um, after that, it's, it's project work. So most of the time at Constructive Modern Knowledge is spent in project work. And part of that is just feeling what it feels like to be a learner. You know, we ask teachers at the very beginning, try and take off your teacher hat. Don't look at this as how am I going to make a lesson plan for Arduino, but you know, I, you can be a kindergarten teacher and want to make a project that's that's highly technical. You can be a high school teacher and want to make a project that's that's mostly, you know, just construction and it and you know, it doesn't relate to the content that you teach. Um, the idea is to feel what it feels like to have wonderful ideas, as, as Eleanor Douglas says, um, and to sort of be selfish with your time, to be that learner, to think about how that impacts your classroom. And then when you leave, you can you, you go back to a world full of constraints, but you're better able to look at those constraints and say, do I have to accept things the way they are? Um, because you've seen this sort of crazy unconstrained, um, it had this unconstrained experience. Um, we also try and bring in speakers who are really, who, who have expertise in extraordinary areas, um, particularly in spaces like social justice and things that aren't traditionally connected to technology. This year we have, for example, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Pulitzer Prize. I mean, I, I couldn't even list the number of awards. She's won as a journalist writing about the problems of, um, you know, uh, segregation in, in schools. And what does that have to do with an Arduino? Well, <laughs> it has to do with empowerment. It has to do with upending things. It has to do with looking at things and saying, it doesn't have to be that way, that I can make a change, that that my contribution is not tiny, that, that my contribution can change the world. And hoping the teachers kind of catch that fire. We're having um, a guy from Finland who's a light artist and he does light installations. Like he, he did a, a performance art at Stonehenge where he lit Stonehenge from various angles. He's lit mountains and he runs a botanical garden. And it, I mean, he's like, Oh my God, he's done so many things. And so we want teachers to walk away thinking expertise can, can come in a lot of different packages. Um, the world is not a, is, is a place that I can have an impact on and I can start with my kids in my classroom. And so we have a lot of agendas packed into those four days, but people tell us that it's a time when they can sort of get into the flow, think about learning, connect with colleagues who are doing amazing things from all over the world, listen to fantastic speakers, and go back to the classroom really recharged and refreshed. So um, all that information is on our website at constructingmodernknowledge.com. Um, this is our 12th year, so we're peripherally connected to the maker movement, but we were there, we were doing this well before that. It was, it's about creativity and computing and modern learning. Um, and, you know, using any tool available at, at every, at every price range and size and shape and subject area and grade level. And every year we have a, a, a terrific time and, uh, teachers walk away going, I'm, I, I know what I need to do. Uh, that was definitely my experience a couple of years ago, uh, overwhelmed by the knowledge on the floor 
which is a, a great sign for a makerspace because it really fuels getting things happen when there's someone to go answer your questions, but also just this this breadth of experience. I mean, the year I was there, we were getting to talk to some of the creators of, you know, the logo turtle. And then we get to, you know, visit MIT lab and you're, you're like, oh, there's Marvin Minsky's wife right there. I mean, uh, like you just felt like this is where a lot of this maker culture um, concentrates into one point. You know, we, we, it's, Marvin Minsky was such a loss. He was so generous with his time. He came, we would go to MIT and he would stay and, and talk to anyone who wanted to talk and have like a fireside chat with him. And he said these amazing mind blowing things that were just like, you know, just came out of him. Like, like, you know, he, one time I remember this was this thing we, we touched on. He said, why is every piece of, of um, learning encapsulated in 18 weeks? What does the semester have to do <laughs> with with learning right can't you learn something in a week what are the things that we could be teaching that took a week or a month or a year i mean and he wasn't talking about like micro credentials or badging he was talking about an active community where you could learn something that you need to learn go back and work on something come back and and learn a little more you know go back and forth and um you know, he, he said stuff that I'll think about for the rest of my life. And it's such a loss that he's that he, he died so young. Um, well, like you said, for many of us, his death was sort of an introduction to a lot of his work. Uh, and it's, you know, Papert as well. Like I always knew about Turtle. I was trained on the Turtle when I was in elementary school. Um, and then you get to kind of then read all the theory and thought that went into those things. Like, it, it's just kind of mind blowing. Thank you very much for spending the time today. I'm not sure I'll be at CMK this year, but I hope to catch up with you soon at one of the conferences. I may make it to ISTE for a couple of the days uh, and I'll be in the New York area for, for June. So if you're in that area uh, and let's have coffee. Yeah, I'll definitely be at ISTE. Let me, let me know and it'd be great to talk more. Okay, I'll see you at the Bloggers Cafe. Uh, in the meantime, uh, goodbye. <laughs> okay, bye. Thanks, Chris.